I'm finished. I think I'm finished. I think I'm completely done. Yeah. I, like, I like having energy and focus mm -hmm. and ability to. I love. I love your little universe here. Thank you. This is my everything room. I music here. I meditate. I and I was doing workshops. I do workshops here.
This is Kelly Carlin, and welcome to Waking from the American Dream. Suzanne ran away with the circus when she was 43. Misses her kids occasionally as she swings on her trapeze. But she doesn't miss washing dishes As she flies through the air With the breeze in her hair Devil may care Cause you can't have everything to the floor and 
She'll never like washing dishes, but at night when no one's there, she'll feel the breeze in her hair. Devil may care, 'cause you can't have everything. That was Carrie Cooper and her darling ukulele. Uh, if I'll just remind you of how I met Carrie Cooper, she showed up at one of our parties here. She was friend with my friend Eric Schwartz, and he's like, "Can I have my friend Carrie come by? She's on the way to the airport because I'm airport adjacent." And uh, she showed up, and as is happens at my parties, uh, she had her little ukulele, and, and Eric's like, oh, "Carrie, can Carrie play a song?" And I'm like, "Yeah, Carrie can play a song." And she pulls out this ukulele, and then. Proceeds to blow us away with her darling, amazing voice and presence and and skillful songwriting. So Carrie Cooper, check her out. I think she's got a new album out, actually. We need to we need to investigate that. Uh, so welcome, everyone. Welcome back, everyone. It's been two weeks. Uh, I got a little busy, had some things to do. You know me, I can multitask a lot. But Sometimes you just have to take a breath and, you know, focus. Uh, so had a great time the last two weeks. Uh, last Saturday did my show, A Carlin Home Companion, at the Acme Comedy Theater. And I'm proud to say, being a member of Smodcast, that I made Kevin Smith cry like a child, like a baby. <laughs> he was uh, very proud to uh, show the snot on his sleeve. <laughs> To everyone. Uh, it was a great, great show. He and a bunch of comics showed up. It was very fun. I had a blast. Uh, and then the weekend before that, I did sketch comedy for the first time in my life with uh, TMI Hollywood show at the Second City Theater in Hollywood. And uh, let's see, got to play Joan Rivers, uh, got to be slapped, uh, got to be in a fake reality show with Rain Pryor and Andrew Dice Clay and Carrot Tops uh, fiction fiction fictionalized daughters uh, so check out if you want to check it out it's really cool go to tmi hollywood and they've got uh, past shows archived and i know my shows on there um i had a, a blast i had more fun than i've had in a long time on stage with that so that was great so that's why i was busy i was just focused and busy and busy and focused and so i apologize for being gone but i want to say that uh, spring has really sprung here. Uh, if you could see my garden, and I will tweet some pictures of it later this week, uh, the wisteria has bloomed. Uh, the jasmine is just off the charts. The jasmine has already bloomed, and now it's like some of it's dying off. That's how much it's bloomed. Uh, but the fun part is that the coral tree and its Dr. Seuss flowers are emerging. I will definitely tweet pictures of that so you can uh, see my cool coral tree in action. Uh, but spring is a, it's, it's kind of sprung here, and it's been kind of gloomy in the morning, which is kind of how LA does spring. Like, you know, if you're new to LA and you think spring's going to be like New York City, 
I'm sorry to disappoint you. You're going to be depressed. <laughs> if you live by the coast, it's going to be gray for three months. So it's been kind of gray and gloomy a little bit, but it's, it's getting there. Uh, and uh, boy, big week. We've had like, a yeah, last week was the spring equinox, and then we have Passover, and we've got Easter coming up. It's big doings in the sacred department, people. Big, big doings. Um, so, uh, you know, Get your get your rebirth, resurrection, renewal shit in line because this is the time to focus on it. Do you have a list of things you need to let go of? Forgive yourself for forgive uh, another tribe for uh, let go of. Uh, do you is there anything you want to plant for the future? Anything you want to emerge from the ground? Because because guess what, folks? Persephone is 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 has escaped from the underworld for a, a few for a little while to visit her mother, and spring has sprung here. So uh, and for you people on the east coast and the upper echelons of America, still under snow, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I didn't I didn't mean to rub it in your face, but it springs around the corner. I'm positive it's around the corner. In fact, a little Phoebe just landed on the tree out there. Uh, so in honor of spring, I've written a uh, an essay for today. Yay, I've written another essay. It's amazing. I actually got it done. It's funny. Um, I part of the reason I didn't couldn't work. I didn't decided not to do the show last week was because it was like, I just my head was so full of the words from my one woman, one woman show that I was like, I don't have room for an essay in me this week, I can't write. So that's part of the reason I didn't do the show. Uh, and uh, so uh, <clears throat> oh, I can barely read this. Hold on. The sun is coming in. Sorry, people. All right. So uh, here's this week's essay. It's called Jack Shit. No one knows jack shit. No one knows jack shit is one of those truths I have finally let myself happily accept as the earnest striving of my youth fades into the rear mirror of my life. No one knows jack shit. Now, what exactly jack shit is, is another conversation for another day. But I'm sure even if we do not know the true nature of the jackness of the shit, we are proclaiming we do not know. Let's all agree that no matter what, jack shit isn't amounting to much. Accepting that no one really knows anything has become a great freedom. You see, I used to be one of those people who walked through life assuming that everyone knew way more about everything than I did. I believe that everyone had received the sacred manual of life somewhere along the line, and the fact that um, mine had never arrived was something I could actually never admit to anyone. I looked out from my vantage point of utter confusion and saw a world full of people who knew where to go, how to get there, and what to do once they arrived. Since I was trained by a couple of well-meaning and quite loving wolves to be a know-it-all adult at age six— you adult children of alcoholics out there, you know what I mean. I never, ever let anyone know that I did not know jack shit. My cover story was not only did I know jack shit, I knew Jill shit too. This was a pretty unfun game for a few decades, but I played it. I had a chance to step away from the game in my early 20s when my mother imparted the wisdom. Everyone is faking it. I recall looking incredulously at her. I knew by this time that she had been sober for over a decade, but thinking maybe it had done some permanent damage after all. The possibility of everyone faking it created way too much, well, possibility. You know, not the good kind, but the sudden crashing of chaos on an ordered world kind. 
the president is faking it? You mean he doesn't know exactly what to do about everything? Picasso was faking it? Einstein? Madonna? Well, okay, that one was easier to accept. But still, wait, if Madonna was faking it, well, shit, maybe there's a chance. But still, if my dad and Spalding Gray and Woody Allen and Karen Finley and Carol Burnett and Kurt Vonnegut and Langston Hughes were all faking it, and yet were all people who had done work that only hit me in the most real of places in my being, then just maybe there was something to this. Maybe what they were faking was the part that was ultimately fake anyway, the arbitrary nature of the rules of the game of our culture. You know, the part that we are all socialized into for the sake of making the world run smoothly enough to do business, feed the people and live semi-ordered lives. You know, the parts we construct out of our collective need to keep us from killing each other every time the asshole in the lane next to us does not let us merge onto the freeway. Maybe they were faking that part so they could get to the real part. Well, uh, above and beyond that, what I now know my mom really meant was the only way to discover what you actually know at first, you have to fake it. Fake it till you make it, as they say in AA. Basically, all the theory, ideas, and notions you have about anything you want to move towards in your life is all well and good, but you don't get squat until you do something. And then once you do something, then you will know something. And only then will you know what to do next. So somehow by allowing yourself to know nothing at the beginning leads one to knowing exactly what one needs to know in the end. When I'm willing to stand in the empty-handed humble space of what some call beginner's mind, the ultimate position of I do not know jack shit, I am handed the power to move forward in a way that relieves me of the burden of perfection and instead opens up true possibility and deep intelligence within me. Knowing jack shit, if really claimed, just may lead you to actually knowing a ton of shit, which then might make you explain, exclaim, holy shit. I'm not sure, but I think, I mean, I think this might have been exactly what Jesus meant when he said that the meek shall inherit the earth. But I'll let others quibble over the finer points of theology on this lovely Thursday afternoon. Oh, and happy Easter. Six years old in the summer of 69. Ten o'clock was way past my bedtime in my tiny Texas town. The world seemed small when the sun went down. And the moon was just a word in a nursery rhyme But all that changed One night in late July Glued to the TV screen Eyes on the sky And I can tell you what I thought When I saw that astronaut Step out on the moon I said goodbye
Yes, that was more Carrie Cooper with Anything is Possible. Nice uh, theme kind of overlapping there, Logan. Well done on that part. I think he meant it. (laughs) Okay, welcome back, everyone. Uh, So today I have a guest, someone I've known for, God, I want to say like since if we met at the Rose in the Valley, that was like right when after I got out of grad school, like 2004, I'm thinking. Wow. <clears throat> That's a while ago. To my, to my guest today is Amy Friedman. She's an author. Uh, she's been writing forever and ever, uh, all sorts of great things. We've got so much to talk about. Plus, she's a teacher of writing. Uh, we're going to talk today about her memoir, Desperado's Wife, but she's also got two previous published memoirs, Kick the Dog and Shoot the Cat. And Nothing Sacred, A Conversation with Feminism. Her articles, essays, and stories have appeared in magazines, newspapers, and several anthologies, including What Was I Thinking, Stricken, 5,000 Stages of Grief. Wow, I'd like to talk to you about that. And Dance at the Shame Prom. Since 1992, Amy has published more than 1,000 adaptations of myths, folktales, and fairy tales in her internationally syndicated newspaper feature, Tell Me a Story, for Universal Press Syndicate. And Amy teaches others about writing at the UCLA Extension uh, Writers Program and Idlewild Arts and the Skirball Center's Learning for Life Program. Uh, Amy, welcome to the program. Thanks, Kelly. Great to be here. Great, great to have you. I've been immersed in your book um, on and off for about four days now. And um, uh, if I didn't have other things that I had to do, <laughs> I, I literally couldn't put it down because it was like... I mean, you kind of you know where it's going because you. I know you, and I know you're married to someone else. But in the book, you're married to a gentleman who's in prison in Canada. And first of all, I have to tell you something. I've only been to a few cities in Canada, but Kingston happens to be one of them oh, because fantastic. one of my closest friend has a cottage on Wolf Island. Oh my god! 
Wow. <laughs> I know. <laughs> well, you're one of the lucky ones. It's a beautiful part of the world. It is an amazing part of the world. Last summer, we got to spend a week at Wolf Island. And uh, so immediately when I started reading the book, I'm like, Kingston? I'm- Around the corner from where the book takes place. Wow. It's just, it's crazy. That is that is crazy. Uh, so... So I I don't want to I won't do it justice. So I, I tell the just tell my listeners a little bit about what this book is about and what prompted you to to write it. Yeah, to write it to tell the story now. Yeah. Yeah. So uh l- I'll start with this that I I was a newspaper journal a newspaper columnist in Kingston um which many people haven't heard of but is a really beautiful p- part of the world. And um one thing about that part of the world is it's surrounded by prisons. It's right over the border of New York State, and there are a lot of prisons in New York State, and there are 10 or 12 in the Kingston area. So I was curious about prison, and I decided that I was going to go into prison and find out about prison, and I was going to write about prison so that people understood it. Mm-hmm. Um, Part of my interest in prison also came from the fact that my father was a Jewish prisoner of war during World War II in a German prison camp. Wow. And, I, and I had this, I've always had this sort of theory that prison seeps into the soul of the descendants of prisoners. Mm, sure, sure. So I walked in and never expecting this to happen, but I ended up falling in love with someone who was serving a life sentence for murder, mm. life 13. Mm. And um, long story short, I mean, the the myriad things happened quickly, but um, we ended up getting married in a prison chapel, um, and we were married for seven years. I raised his daughters, um, who were very, very young when he went in, and... Uh, and and when he got out, and, and I spent seven years kind of passionately involved with prisoners' rights mm-hmm. and perhaps more than prisoners' rights, prisoners' families' rights. Mm. Um, you know, I kind of saw what happened to me. I, I was fired from my job. I was thrown. I, I went from being this sort of popular, famous girl in town <laughs> to being uh, the scum uh, and, wow. you know, tossed out of off boards of directors, tossed out of jobs, tossed out of friendships, mm. um, just by virtue of the fact that I'd fallen in love with somebody who was not the right person to mm-hmm. fall in love with. Mm. So um, cut to seven years later, fought, 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 got him out on parole. Um, he didn't do well. Now, I'm not going to ruin the end of the book for you, Kelly. But (laughs) I was telling Amy that I was like diligently reading and I'm like, I still have like 15% of the book left to go. I'm so mad. It's the sad 15%. (laughs) Um, But I, so we ended up splitting up Mm -hmm. when he got out. Mm. Um, He, like most of the prisoners, you know, I came to know a lot, a lot, a lot of prisoners and a lot of, I know a lot of ex-prisoners. And um, it's tough getting out. It's yeah. not a. It's not an easy, easy journey. Yeah. Um, and our marriage suffered as a result. Mm-hmm. Um, and we split up. I I ended up several years later meeting the man I'm married to now, who lived in Los Angeles. I lived still up there. I lived in Ottawa at that point, and uh, moved to Los Angeles because it's warmer. No. <laughs> Partly because it's warmer, um, and and he had teenage children when we met. Uh-huh. So um, 
So I I had always been I've always been a writer since I was twelve, and and in a funny way, my life as a writer has always I think when I when I think about it, it's always been about giving voice to the voiceless. Mm. Um, I started out. I had a grandmother when I uh, my father's mother was um, I guess bipolar would be the diagnosis now, and didn't speak. And I felt really connected to her. So I started writing short stories when I was really young that were my imaginings of what she would say if she spoke. Wow. And I, I sort of see this, you know, so so I was giving voice to, I wanted to give voice to prisoners. This story, um, partly I needed to write it because I needed to understand what had happened. Mm. Um, in a way, a, a, a decade of my life kind of vanished. Yeah. And... Um, and it took me a decade to write it. Um, I started writing in 2002. And uh, it took me that long, I think, to understand what happened. Yeah, yeah. And, and and I love what you just said. You know, you wrote it to understand. I think those of us who write memoir, autobiographical material, it's exactly why we write this material right. is because through the writing, there's some sort of actual processing that's going on through the act of language and Absolutely. languaging and storying these things that gives us something that can help us witness it or stand apart from it or or understand it in some other way yeah yeah and I, and you know and i think when you start writing a lot of times because i teach memoir too a lot of times people start thinking they know what their story is going to be and yeah. and become surprised yeah. and there were there were things that obviously i knew the facts of this story, but there were a lot of things I learned that surprised me. Like what? Well, <laughs> um, I, I think I learned the ways in which I was a little mad during that time. Hmm. Um, I, I was really angry that people labeled me as mad. And I, and I don't believe that I was crazy to marry him. I mean, I, I don't believe that was the craziness. But... Um, I I I sort of went over to the other side when I when I first went into prison I was this big believer and I still am mm. in listening to people mm-hmm. in listening to what people have to say and trying to understand everyone has a point of view right and, and trying to sort of see so when I first went in and I would talk to the prisoner I was interviewing everyone I was interviewing guards and administrators and prisoners and they all had different points of view about what was going on, clearly. <laughs> yes. And and one of the things that, that I said to Will, who I ended up marrying, um, he hated guards, hated cops, hated administrators. And I said, no, you, you know, you have to sort of try to see everybody's side. Well, very quickly, when I became a prisoner's wife, mm. I, I couldn't see anybody else's point of view. And, um, and... I was always hurt and always angry and um, always fighting. Now, I I think there's a lot to fight. Mm. I think there's a lot wrong with prison. Yeah. Um, so it, it's not that I now see the point, you know, now, now I see everybody's side and everybody's equal. Right. But um, I did sort of just become a prisoner. And, um, and I fought his battles for him mm-hmm. instead of helping to be a partner and 
allowing him to fight his own battles. Uh huh. Yeah. It, it's interesting the the part about you know uh, becoming a prisoner. You know, I think about it from like this. You know, the kind of the Jungian archetypal way of you know, it's like the archetype of the prisoner. Uh, you know, kind of abducted you. You became immersed in it, and and suddenly your ability to be the prisoner or be the guard or be the administrator or be the general, you know, John Q. public person, it, you know, all that stuff disappears and we, we get swept up into this point of view and and how then the world becomes so black and white right. to, to us. Because right. I think that was clearly, uh, when I was reading it, it was watching someone, you know, kind of f- falling into this hole, you know, it was like here this was this person who had this wide range of, ability to, to 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 kind of see the world in this liberal way and then suddenly there was this very sharp distinction and it was mm-hmm. us against them absolutely i became i became one of us i guess <laughs> <laughs> if i were on his side but i yeah. did i went from being the understanding all seeing yeah to i am one of us mm. and and you you are against us um, yeah, and it well, and I think one of the things about being a person who's so open minded, you know, because I always think there's a shadow side to everything, and so the shadow side to being open minded would be to be entrenched in a position in some way, right. and so here it's like this is how your particular shadow showed up, you know, it was like right. you know, and all of your, um, you know, and tied into that, like you said, was this understanding of, you know, your father being a prisoner, and also this understanding you had about injustice in the world. I mean, you were a person who was clearly out to to understand it and try to dismantle it in some way. So it, and that part of me hasn't gone away. Yeah, I mean, that it and there, there are, there are all kinds of things that happened during those years that that transformed me in ways that I don't think I'll, I mean, I'll never, I'll never see the world Mm. the way I did before. Yeah. Um, And, and there. I would say I, I've always sort of leaned towards being on the side of those who are struggling, suffering. Mm-hmm. The um, underdog, yeah. The underdog, yeah. yeah. Always root for underdog teams, for sure. <laughs> as soon as they start winning, I'm not interested anymore. <laughs> um, I grew up in Cleveland. I was a Cleveland Indian. Come on. Of course. <laughs> it's in your DNA. It's in my DNA, that's right. Um but but so so but i did you know i writing the book did help me to kind of understand the parts of me that were to, became codependent mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um the parts of me that that weren't helping mm. um and and that that made that firestorm a bigger firestorm right. than maybe it maybe it necessarily had to be uh, yeah i think one of th- for me as the reader in reading your story and watching you take these steps towards falling in love deeper and deeper and and being swept up in this f- fairy tale and so it's a it mm. is a fairy tale in a, in an interesting way because will is a very compelling man yeah. you know here he is in in a prison for life had murdered someone a drug deal drug thing went down wrong he wasn't some sort of psychopathic mur- he was like in bad circumstance kind of thing and yet he was this like grounded reason he was the grounded reasonable one inside this institution he was the one that everyone looked up to and he had this code of ethics and so so it, it was it's a very 
alluring. I could absolutely, and I could, and reading it and, and kind of leaning, watching over your shoulder as the reader, as you take these steps with, we're both fascinating and exciting. And at the same time, I kept wanting to go, but, but no, wait, just, Don't just take it. a pause. Just take one more breath. Are you sure this is what you want to do, honey? Are you sure? You know, do you understand the ramifications of all of this? And, and clearly I did not. Yeah. I mean, um, but I did fall in love. I mean, and that's, yeah, that's, that's very clear. Yes. It's the other part of the story is that, you know, I, I, I think this is the big thing to me. Like when, when people say murderer, Mm-hmm. The first thing everybody thinks is, well, he's a psychopath. He's Jeffrey Dahmer. Yes. He's he's crazy. Yeah. I, I met a lot of people who were convicted of murder, and 99% of them are not Jeffrey Dahmer's or um, – I'm losing the names of the famous ones. Yeah, but, yeah. You know, the the murderers you know about are yeah. the people who are famous. Yeah. They're yeah. celebrity murderers. <laughs> yes. um, and And the people who fall in love with celebrity murderers are like people who fall in love with celebrities. Yeah. It's, it, you know, it's a different kind of falling in love. Mm-hmm. Um, but I met lots of people who were in prison for killing someone and, and not innocent. Right. Um, but circumstances gone bad. Yeah. Um, a guy, one guy I knew who was a huge, big, strong guy had gotten in a bar fight drunk and punched somebody and the guy died. Yeah. Wow. And there he was serving a life sentence. Mm-hmm. Um, but the people who marry them are likewise not crazy, terrible people. Right. But the images are so strong in our culture of who who we are, who prisoners' wives are, who prisoners are, you know, how how they're there's something really wrong and something not like us. Yeah, sure. And really it's all of us. You yeah. know, and I, I fell in love with him the way I've fallen in love with people since. Mm-hmm. Um and and I still love him. I mean I, I still, you know, it was a really painful and difficult journey, mm. but the things that I loved about him, I still love. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, there's uh, you talk in the book about your parents' marriage, and they had this really particular type of of love between them, and almost an ideal. Uh, version of of what that looks like between a man and a woman. And so, you know, and that's so much what what shapes us is, I mean, our parents are our models for that. And we, you know, we either, we, I think we ultimately seek it out, whether we rebel against it or not, it is ultimately what we seek out is some version of that, or we play it out in some way. And, and what was so fascinating was your understanding, you know, in writing it, obviously, you, you you came to an understanding because it was clear the way you were writing about it was that you were looking for that same kind of connection and partnership your parents had. And yet here you had chosen this person Someone who unavailable. <laughs> was unav- physically unavailable and that no one in your life could really understand. Uh, most people in your life, like you said, turned their back on you and you, you had to go kind of build a new life uh, because of it. And and yet you were seeking this perfection at the same time. Right. Yeah. It was high romance. I mean, and my yeah. parents, my father in particular, is is highly romantic. And in the most, you know, he, he would never describe himself that way. Mm-hmm. But but 
he it's it's like when he tells the story of falling in love with my mother it's that I saw her I loved her and that was it and she's been dead for several years and he, it she's still the one mm-hmm. I mean still now when I see him and he'll look at a picture of her and he'll just go on mm. you know for a few hours about <laughs> her perfection <laughs> um so I so the fairy tale it's interesting that you said fairy tale cuz there is a fairy tale element to the whole the whole image to me, I think, of how I grew up about what love was, what it was supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And I had failed at it. So, you know, I, by the time I met him, I had failed a couple times to have the fairy tale. Mm-hmm. So he became kind of like really the fairy tale. Mm-hmm. You know, I, 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 I put a lot of a lot on the possibilities of how that would work. Yeah. And, and I think there's something about the fact that you had to live in a fantasy future right that right. fed that fire right you know because you you were you were dealing with the reality but it but it was always about what when he's out or when it's this exactly. or i can't wait till he's here and exactly. and, and so put, putting off the reality and i mean i have to tell you in some ways i could really relate to a lot of what you were what was going on especially around the the caretaking and the avoiding the truths and the the reality type of things that was the, my ten, my 20s my 10 years <laughs> i was with a and he was 10 years older he was married when i met him he was a coke dealer i mean you know bad guy the, not bad guy but you know bad boy the type bad of boy. Thing. yeah totally <laughs> we all have to have them <laughs> and, and you know and i and i really thought that i was going to whip him into shape and right. save him i mean right. there's a couple of paragraphs in there where you're describing how you're going to you know, fix everything and save him and all of that. And if he would just do this, and if he would just do that, and I was like, I, that's what that's what fueled me for 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. You know, when he gets like that, then it will be dot, 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 right. you know, yeah, I think there's more people than not who've had that. Experience. I think so, too. <laughs> I mean, an interesting thing in, in trying to sell this book, mm. um, I, I, I met a lot of resistance. And I think Part of the resistance had to do with that it's the extreme of that story that so many people have. Mm-hmm. Um, so many people become, you know, in, entranced by something that they are going to make perfect or that looks like it will be perfect one day. Or, But this was – I think it scared people a little. Mm. And I mean I think that our culture doesn't like to talk about prison. Yeah, I think you're right. <clears throat> and – you know, we we need to talk about it because there's too many millions of people who are in prison and yeah. too many millions of people associated with them who are being hurt by that. But I think it because this story is like, oh, this is this is what happens if you really do that to an extreme. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it just scared people away. Yeah. I, I mean, even just I've know I've known you now for about nine years. On we see each other about once a year at a place here, a place there, whatever, and. And when I I had no idea what the book was about, and then I started reading, it and I was like, "Wait, <laughs> wait a minute! This Amy did this." And and for a moment, yeah, it was like, "Do I really know this person?" Like, right. well, you know, and it is. We have such uh, judgment about this. It's and it's so instantaneous, and it just gets shut down inside of us. And and. Yeah, and it's because and it's so interesting because I, I think of myself as a very empathic, mm-hmm. empathetic, open-minded liberal person who you know thinks about the mass incarceration in this country. I think it's one of the biggest issues 
nobody is talking about in this country. And and yet this line of it, it is, it's like something inside you gets a little shaky, like, oh, but there for the grace of God, there go I. Right. Because. <laughs> right. And, and, or, or I would never go there. Right, right, and, right, 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 right. Or, or that, yes. But yeah. And, and yet, because there's something so utterly shaming right. about prison. Right. And that the minute you're in that system, you are branded forever. Right. You, you're, not, you're not seen as a human being anymore. Right. That's right, and and and, and I, you know, and to really think about the the percentage of people who are you know what I guess we could deem truly evil people who need to be locked in a cell for the rest of their life, as opposed to the percentage that are there for bad mistakes, decisions, mental illness, whatever it is. I mean, I, I'm guessing that that percentage is a huge percentage of the population, and yeah. and of course some of the laws. I mean, the drug laws are ridiculous in this country, and that's the, a, a good portion of prisoners right now. Is right. Um, so it it, it is. Um, it's a brave. It's a really brave world that you that you went into. I mean, I yeah, think and it was, you know, and I and I didn't. I mean, I have to say that like I look at it now and I think, oh God, I was either brave or completely mad. But but I think you have to be kind of both. <laughs> a little of both. A little of both. But at the time, it, it didn't feel like bravery. At the right. time, it felt like love. Yeah. I mean, at the time, it, and it felt was. Like, yeah. like I care about this person and his family. I mean, his children, his mother, his yeah. sisters, the whole, the whole family. Yeah. Um, and his family, interestingly, I mean, there's all sorts of interesting elements to this, but they were very, very secretive and mm. and believed really strongly in not letting anyone know. Mm-hmm. So keep this a secret. Yeah, don't let it show because you will suffer. And you know, and the kids did suffer. I mean, when he yeah. first went to prison, they were not allowed into their friends' homes and and things like that. I mean, they suffered in the way that families do. And I'm a big believer in you tell your story. Yes. You say what's going on. <laughs> right. You you confront people with that. And and if you don't, it it sort of harbors itself inside sure, of you. Sure, you're going to suffer one way or the other. Yes. Right. Yeah. Um so there was that tension always between us and remains actually my my older stepdaughter when when the book came out She's not speaking to me. Mm. Um, this is a story she would like to pretend didn't happen. Wow. And so the book is, you know, just she can't handle it. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. And it's it's got to be complicated for her. And, and yeah, secrets are tough. Mm-hmm. Um, I, 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 it's, it's like you understand both sides of that. You understand why they would want to not have to share that, you know, and there is that really poignant scene in there where where is I think it's her that you're talking about was having difficulty at school. Yeah. And you were just like, if you just tell them what's going on, they're not going to see you as this fuck up. Yeah. You know, and she's like, no. Yeah. You Kicking know? me under the table. Yeah. Like, you know, sitting in a conference with her teachers. Yeah. Saying, well, you know, she's been kind of spacey. And I want to say, you would be spacey too if you had to go to prison, if you had to go through strip searches, if you had to be seen as mm. the bad guy every single day of your life. Mm-hmm. There, you would space out, I assure you. And they, you know, and the teacher would say, "Well, we've dealt with kids of divorce," and I'd say, "Well, it's not exactly <laughs> it's a just more divorce. complicated no, than divorce." <laughs> well, we've dealt with kids who who live with single mothers, and well, it's not exactly that. And she's kicking me under the table, yeah. not letting me. 
Yeah. And, you know, and suffered the consequences of that because she just looked like a kid who was not interested. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and it, I mean, I, I, I felt resonance with her because I, you know, when my parents were, my mom was alcoholic and when she was out of control and my dad was drugging during those years, I too went to school and, you know, pretended that everything was fine at home. You know, kids grow up with their parents' secrets and right. it does take a huge toll on the children and... And I think that's part of why I now in my life I <laughs> I'm like you I tell my stories. Right. right. Well, you <laughs> know, it's like I can't keep it secret anymore. There's there's all this new research. I can't remember the name of the book, but there's a new book out that's about how that all these studies have shown that the most successful families, the happiest families, the healthiest families, are those families that allow their stories to be told. Hmm. That. If and no matter what the story is, right. no matter like good, bad, part ugly, part of it is going to prison. You right, know, part of it is being an alcoholic. Part of it is being whatever. Yeah, because if you can see your story truthfully, you can see it goes up and down and in and out and yeah. all around. And and then it's not then it's not this thing you have to just keep inside that kind of grows like a cancer. Yeah, I mean, I think that that is why talk therapy. I mean, it's interesting. They've done a lot of studies on the efficacy of different therapies. And there's, you know, cognitive behavioral and all this kind of therapy, you know, stuff. And then there's basic good old fashioned talk therapy. And they found that basically, they all work about the same. Right. 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 (laughs) Which I find is fascinating. Right. And so what everybody should do is write memoir. They should. That's what works best. Everyone get up and tell your story. (laughs) Well, you know, they say in AA, you're only as sick as your secrets. Yeah. You yeah, know, and that's yeah. I think that's why because yeah. a secret holds there's there's some sort of burden with that and there's well there's a shame the shame, the issue of shame around it that's right. that's huge and and you know it was uh, I, I my dad in a lot of ways was also a person kind of reminded me of Will in a little bit because mm-hmm. there was like this in. Um, entrenched black and white thinking a little bit around us versus them, you know, and, and, and then I became the person who was always the, well, we need to hear everyone's perspective, because everyone has something to say. And, and there's, there's a gem in, in every point of view, um, t- to balance that out. Um, and, and yet, there is a point where Will is right, that there's a lot of people who just don't give a shit and we're out to get him right. and and we're willing to lie and manipulate right. and the system and um and not do their job well right. um because prisoners aren't worth it or whatever their view of it is and and how do you how do how now that you've you know you've lived through this and and you've lived another decade th- through it or so how have you learned to balance that 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 kind of Paran- that healthy paranoia versus, right. you know, the, the 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 paranoia that'll that'll keep you stuck in a corner somewhere. I I'm not sure I know how to balance it. Mm. I'm not sure I do. Mm. I I know, I I am more suspicious of people than I once was. Mm. I mean, I I used to sort of expect the best of people, and, uh-huh. and then you know, a lot of people in this story taught us not to expect that. Yeah, not to expect the best. Yeah, um, but I. But I, I think part of how I deal with it is by trying, and I think this is part of what draws me to memoir. What's what makes me teach memoir is part of the way I deal with it. With it is kind of insisting that people tell things that are true, hmm. and 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 insisting that somehow 
insisting, maybe that's the wrong word, but encouraging people <laughs> to be truthful. Um, and that, 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 that sort of finds its way through some of the uglier stuff. I mean, you know, I, I think about like, I've been watching all the, the DOMA, uh-huh. the Supreme Court stuff this week. And, yes. and just listening to those stories, you know, just listening to people tell their truths. I don't care how, I, I, I mean, who knows how it's going to play out, right? But, but no one can deny those stories anymore. They're out right. there. I think about Harvey Milk saying, you know, just be be who you are. Don't be afraid of being who you are. Speak your truths. And you look at what has happened since what 1979. When did Harvey Milk die? 79? Yeah, or maybe even a few years earlier than that. Yeah. Um, you know, since he said that, since he fought that battle in yep. 20-some years, mm-hmm. and everything's changed. Yep. And um, I... So that's that's sort of where where I'm at with with prison, mm-hmm. and particularly with prisoners' families. Like I I have great empathy for people in prison, and I can get furious about some of the some of the sentences people are getting. Mm. But I think more of my empathy at this point it lies with wives, husbands, children, mm-hmm. mothers, fathers of prisoners who, and you know, I fell in love with Will. I think it started like one of the first things he said to me when we met. He didn't want to talk to me. Um, all, all these other people were coming over. Every you know, I was a journalist. I was going to write about them. So there were all kinds of people hungry for for um, becoming stars, right? Of a sort. And he was not interested. And and he said, "Well, I don't want to talk to you because every time a journalist comes into the prison, something bad happens to prisoners," mm. um, which. Turns out to often be the true. Mm. Um, but he said, if you want to know about prison, you should talk to prisoners' families. They are innocent. Mm-hmm. They never did anything to hurt anybody. And they know exactly what prison is. Right. And he's right. And and so I've talked to you a little bit about this before today. But um, so my, my husband, the man I'm married to now, mm-hmm. Dennis, mm-hmm. who – never did any time, um, <laughs> who's a teacher and a writer, he and I, he teaches at Venice High School. And we decided that we were going to start a club for kids who have some association with the criminal justice system, mm. either have done some time mm-hmm. or who have loved ones inside. Mm. And it's been astonishing wow. already. Wow. Already. It's, it's only a few months old. And the kids are telling their stories. First of all, they're walking into the room and they're seeing they're not alone. Wow, yes. Wow. And mm. it's ch- already changed a lot of lives mm. in just a few months. Um, so so that's where my passion is now. Like my passion is I want to I want to have a club like this in every school. Just the way there's now LGBT clubs in every school. Yeah. I want there to be Pops, we call it. Mm. It's pain of the prison system is the wow. name of the club. And and what is it that these kids? What do they need? What are what are they? Well, the first thing they need is to recognize they're not alone. Yeah, that's that's the really big thing that that we noticed right away. It was just that it didn't matter. We kind of went around the room and everybody told their name, and some of them said why they were there. So mm. some would say, "Well, my father's been in prison since I was three, and some would just say, "I'm Tony." Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. but but they they saw each other mm-hmm. and they knew every one of them knew that every one of the others had a story too. Yeah. 
So I think that was where it began. Some of them need something as simple as a couple, a lot of the boys have an uncle or a brother or some really important male in their life who is, has been taken from them and mm. is in prison. And they need to feel some way they can stay connected with that person. Um, so some of them, we helped them find where they were. Mm. Some of them didn't know where they were. Mm. Um, you know, and there's a database where you can find out where people are if right. they don't have the same name as 30,000 other people. Right. Um, and um, some of them need to write. Mm -hmm. So the, a number of them have written pieces that have been amazing. I'm sure very powerful. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Some of them need to um, just really specific things. Like one of the kids one day came in and he was going to have to go visit his father for the first time the next day. And he was freaked. Mm. And he just needed everybody to say, this is what happens. You go there. It's not very fun. You're going to probably have to wait a really long time. You know, they're going to treat you badly. You're mm. going to be, it's going to be miserable. It's in a room that's uncomfortable. They'll be, it'll be smoky. Mm. Um, you know, it probably won't be fun, but you'll get to hug him mm -hmm. or you'll get to talk to him. Or, right. You know, and just to just sort of prep him for what he was about to face. Yeah, yeah. Um wow. So it, you know, it's still. I don't know what it's going to be. Yeah. But I think it's. I think it's really been healing. Um, it, it, it's. It sounds like such a such a gift. I mean that that feeling, that sense. I know in my own life when I walked into a room of some sort of support group like that and knew that I was not alone. It changed everything. Right. Suddenly, the world became a much bigger place. Right. And I, and I, I, you know, that is something you talk about in the book, how your world became smaller and smaller and smaller. And that, I think, is, is like living hell, you yeah. know, when your world becomes so small, that you can't even find your find room for yourself in it. And so, for, so what a gift to give, especially teenagers. I mean, it's such a fucking difficult time in yeah. your life anyway. Yeah. And then add that kind of all of all of that that goes with you know something around prison and a family member or whatever it is um just to know that oh at least you know, walking down the hall you can see the eye of someone who's been at that meeting and you just know oh okay well they get it you know right. or they understand why right. i can't function so a, a today a number of them have become like buddies i'm you know, sure yeah amazing yeah um we're also giving them the time to write letters there because mm. some of them don't really know what to do mm -hmm. don't know what to say but if you're in a room with a bunch of other people like we've written a couple of letters all of us mm -hmm. to one person mm. um and also some of the fathers don't want their children writing to them from home because they don't want their address known oh right right so we use the school address as the return address oh, beautiful and you know just the the simplest things. I mean, we're raising money for envelopes and paper and pen, you know, pens mm. to write letters and stamps. Mm. You know, like um, so. It but it's fledgling. You know, I I think it'll. I think we'll learn a lot as it goes on, and it's really for Sarah, my daughter. Yeah. You know, if she had had that, yeah, I just think what a different life she would have had. Yeah. Well, who 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 knows what holds the future? You yeah. know, for for her and, and you. you're the first person I'm telling about. This. I'm this is like I'm thrilled. This is a, a an official announcement <laughs> of the existence of pops. That, that's beautiful, and I, and I love that it's uh, you know right down the hill in a local Venice High, which uh, you know I know seen a gazillion changes in the last thirty or forty years. It's just an amazing, an, ama uh, an amazing school. Um, 
yeah, I mean, one of the things that uh, that that I, I know those kids must feel, and that became clear in the book, is this sense of being an outsider. You know that the culture has deemed you as something, and then you're an outsider. And and it's interesting because I I've talked a little bit about being the outsider this year. I wrote an essay about it and the power of proclaiming your outsiderness, hmm. but. I think there's power in when you can proclaim it for yourself versus when someone else. Yeah, because that. yeah, when you become exiled mm-hmm. in some way, and and how it disempowers, you know, a, a person, and and then how, you know, because you were talking about your madness earlier. It's kind of that section of the book where you are so focused on the injustice and vengeance and telling your story constantly to everyone that everyone thinks you are a mad woman on some level. Right. And, and it's because you are such an outsider and no one is listening. Right. So since no one's listening, I'm just going to yell louder about this and talk more about it because at some point someone's got to hear me, right. you right. know, it's, it's and, I, and I think, yeah, I think I kept believing that. And then, you know, I've sort of gotten to the point where I'm really glad the book exists, mm-hmm. but I also feel kind of relieved of the burden I bet. You know, like, mm. um, okay, if you want to know this story, you can. Yes. Um, but if you don't, I'll leave you alone. I'll go write another book. <laughs> um, so that that was a piece of it for sure. Yeah, because I kept trying to explain and and you know the the greatest thing actually in the process of writing it was um, I'm in a writers group. And one of the women in my writing group, when I first came into it, I was kind of deep into this book. I was about five years or five or six years in. And and I said, well, it's about my marriage to a man who was in prison for murder. And she was like, yuck. Ugh, how could you love? So-? You know, she just couldn't. I mean, several of the people in the group, I think, probably had a little a, a tad of that response. Uh-huh. But, but nothing so dramatic. She just thought, how, how could you ever love someone like that? Mm. How could you love someone who killed somebody? Mm. And so I thought, this is great. I'm joining this group because <laughs> if I can make her understand, yeah, wow, then I've done it. Mm. And there was this day when she said, oh, my God, you know, I kind of love him. <laughs> Right on. Did it. Totally. <laughs> Ding. Ding. My work is done right, here. That's right. <laughs> oh, yeah. See, he's a guy. He's a guy. Like, yeah. He's a guy. He did a terrible thing. Yeah. And he's paying a big price. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. 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 That, yeah. I think uh, I haven't, and like I said, I haven't gotten to the end yet, but, you know, one of the things that I, was thinking about was, you, you know, and it and it happens, I think, t- to people who enter relationships and then become swept up into them and, and lose a sense of themselves. And you talked about that earlier about how you ended up wanting to fix everything for him. And, and how that and ends up undermining everyone in the end, you know, right. we think we're being so damn helpful. Right. And it's, right. it's such a narcissistic act, it really is. <laughs> Yeah, I will save the world. My mother used to say, "Take your s off your chest." Right, you are not superwoman. Um, right, oh, I certainly had a. <laughs> you had a big ass. Shirt. You had a big s on your chest. Yeah. You did, and and you know, I think the big argument. Oh, there's the, the the two sides of the argument is there's the there's the understanding the victim 
And then there's the sense of personal responsibility of the perpetrator, you know, and, and, and everyone thinks it's, well, at least the politics of America, certainly in Canada, too. You know, you're either one or the other, you're either the bleeding liberal heart that everyone's a victim, and right. everyone's got a story, including the perpetrator, and let's all feel sorry for them. And, you know, there's nothing. And then there's the other way, which is, everyone has to take personal responsibility for everything. And there's no explaining any of it, you know. And yet, clearly, there's the importance of holding both of these things are so essential mm-hmm. that to understand that a person doesn't, you know, a become a drug addict doesn't make the choice of bringing a gun with them to a situation without having made, you know, it making some poor choices before that. But these people were children before that and were shaped by a certain thing and, and, and did not deal with things, you know, either had things put upon them, or then at some point, we're not taking personal responsibility for their actions. And it's so frustrating. And I and, and reading the book is so frustrating, because, you know, when he when he gets he gets put in this higher security prison for bogus reasons, and then he gets put back in the, the middle one. And then they've got this program to help him, you know, and it's like, it's like, it's on paper, it probably looked great you know, to the legislature or whatever it was. Oh, we're going to rehab, rehabilitate them. And this is the program anger and everything. Anger management. Yeah. I, I, you know, I think of your father when I hear that term, <laughs> yeah. anger management. Yes, it is. We're going to manage your anger. Exactly. Yeah. We're going to bottle chaos, you know, and, and, and just how, how frustrating it is that people, who, that, first of all, how institutions completely change people the minute they walk into them. Sure. You know, any institution, a prison to academia, I mean, any institution, you get changed by it. And then how this idea that, you know, that by taking away these people's ability to educate themselves, better themselves, work on themselves, be with their loved ones, to be with their loved ones, you know, is, is, is the is the right idea. (laughs) <laughs> that it's going to actually get something done. So when this person, the possibility of this person leaving and coming back into the world, I mean, it's... See, if, that's the important... I think that's the important thing is that most prisoners will get out. Y- yes. So we, what do you want them to come out right. as? And most prisoners who come out, come out as people who are, you know, stuck. They're, they're, they, I mean, especially within their long time. I mean, I think of um, Shawshank Redemption, you know, I mean, just the, the poignancy of that story is, you know, that he had been so institutionalized right. um, that he couldn't face the real world, right. you know, and, and uh, so how do, where do you put all of that? Because I get like this fiery frustration in my chest, just thinking about, it. I can't even imagine being in love with someone who's stuck inside of that and the frustration of all of it. Um, you know, are there other things you've read or organizations you're a part of that are are working to kind of educate the public or help to push legislation through to move this stuff around? I mean, There's, there are, there are a lot of there are a lot of organizations. I I I don't know most of them intimately, mm-hmm. and like I say, because my thing is about kids, basically. Yeah, um, that's sort of where my heart's going. Mm-hmm. But I'll tell you, there there are a couple things that I have learned since. Um, there's a, a great, beautiful memoir that Damien Eccles wrote. Um, Damien Eccles is one of the Memphis Three. I don't know if you know the story, but one of the young kids, he was 17 or 18 when he was convicted, a bullshit case um, of murdering three little boys. And mm. it was, and, and he, the woman who 
fell in love with him um, and married him. He was he was on death row, and they got married, and they did this brilliant thing, which is not what we did. They recognized that he might live there for the rest of his life. Mm-hmm. And so if they were going to be in love and married to each other, they had to be that where from where they were they had right. to love each other like that right not like i'm i love you so much that i'm gonna get you out and it, i mean she fought like crazy mm-hmm. to get him out but mm-hmm. and thankfully he's out mm. but um but it took 18 years mm-hmm. and um so i you know i i when i when i sort of look back and i think about if i were going to counsel people who have a loved one inside i would say you know, love them where they are. Mm. Um, let them fight their battles in some ways. Don't do not do the fighting like I did. Don't be the savior. Don't put on the superwoman shirt. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, the, there, there are a lot of great organizations. There are a lot of prisoners' rights organizations. Mm. There's, there's a, my problem, and I can't say, I can't speak really brilliantly about them because I'm not intimately involved with them, mm-hmm. but my problem with a lot of the organizations that are designed to help families. Um, I was involved with some of them when I was one of the family members as one of the people getting taken care of. Mm. And I did not like that. You know, I, I thought I'm as smart as you are. I'm as accomplished as you are. You know, it was sort of like coming down from on high, like from the therapists, from the, the ministers, from people who knew better. Right. We're going to help you, you poor weak, you poor messed up thing. messed up thing yeah yeah um so i i think that's where pops sort of came from from mm. in my gut was like i want this to be ground up i don't want yes. it to be like other people coming in and telling you know-it-alls who right um so but but there there are you know there are organizations out there there are some really good websites that i wish i brought the websites with me but you know where people prisoners are writing mm. prisoners families not so much mm-hmm. um you know, you don't you don't hear those stories so much. I think because of all the shame yeah. attached. I I'm going to be on the Katie Couric show. Oh, cool! Yeah, talking about this. Beautiful. Um, and but and this has sort of been in the works for a long time. They actually contacted me. They they had read I had a piece from the memoir many years ago now in um, the New York Times in Modern Love, mm-hmm. and the producer found that piece. And called me because she wanted to do a show on on people who marry people in prison. Um, she had met a number of, as she put it, intelligent, well-educated, articulate women married to prisoners. A surprise. <laughs> and um, and so with this started with the arrangement started almost a year ago. Um, and the producer kept calling me and saying, "Can you help us find other?" other wives. Mm. And there were a number of people that I tried to get. And uh, several of them a couple of times said yes, and then sort of backed away. Mm. Um, You know, going on national television and showing your face and talking about a subject that so many people have such a harsh judgment about is tough. Um, Dennis, my husband keeps saying to me, just get ready. You know, there's going to be an audience sitting there and they're not all going to be your friends. Right. Right. They're not all going to be saying, "Oh, you're so terrific." You right. Know? They're going to. Some of them are going to be sitting there thinking, "You are a whack job." Yeah. 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 Um, smile. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, 
but I sort of veered away there. But but anyway, I yeah. you know the, it it's it's a complicated it complicated is. thing. It is, and and you know one of the things you, you talk about in the book is that you know that the way we treat these people says a lot about our culture and mm-hmm. our society, and the fact that we don't talk about it and, and are not really dealing with the issue. Which I mean, I just I went to a Marion Williamson event in I think it was November. It was called Sister Giant. It was about women. Uh, getting into politics, really empowering women to actually get involved in politics to change things. And she she focused on three issues. And one of them was mass incarceration. Mm-hmm. And hearing the numbers and hearing the amount of people who were in jail for things that are, I mean, drug charges that are just ridiculous. ridiculous. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's terrifying. Yeah. It's there's a, frightening. There's, there's a new book out, and I wish I could remember. I'll try to remember this guy's name, but it's it's about um, the death penalty. Mm. And his his angle is, and it's so brilliant, is that our, our penchant for death penalty, our penchant for this kind of thing comes directly from slavery, mm. that we we come from enslaving people right and we 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 come back to that wow. and that's what we're doing wow um and you know i listen i i know lots of 17 year olds being tried as adults mm-hmm. for bad crimes but yeah. you know but but not even we have a student we have a former student Dennis and I who i worked with with him who is one of the most brilliant writers I have ever worked with, ever. And mm. I've taught thousands of people. Mm. And he um, got involved in a to-do in in the hood mm-hmm. and shot a gun, mm. did not kill anyone, shot a guy's shoulder. The guy was in and out of the hospital that night. He got 22 years. Wow. He was 17 years old. <sighs> he was tried as an adult. Oh, my God. And I was so appalled. And we became we, – we still are in – very close touch with him mm. and but what i learned while i was trying to get him help and and get lawyers and get him out of Folsom and mm. into a better place and mm. was how many kids like that there are mm-hmm. just all these kids being tried for for uh, crimes that you know give them a juvenile sentence and yeah. give them some kind of hope but yeah. there's just um, it's it's like a colonization. Yeah, I mean it really is. It's yeah, that, it's that mentality. It is yeah. it is the colonization mentality. Yeah, yeah. It's wow. Yeah the the whole the the, yeah, the whole gang and the culture and the prison and kids walk in the whole gangster right. hipness of it all. I mean you know I mean people have always played with the dark side and and all of that. But this you know this this. Uh, lifestyle choices, you know, that are made and without any real choice to them. Right. And and, and it really shows you that, you know, you start to unravel it a little bit and you see clearly how interdependent every aspect of our culture is on everything else. You know, everything we do affects all of this, that the, that the way prisons are is because of the way the education system is, because of the way, you know, our neighborhoods are, our, neighborhoods are, our wealth. I mean, everything, it just, it you know, it's all, you know, and, it, and you can sit here and you start to become like, your chest gets tight and you're like, okay, I'm overwhelmed, I'm overwhelmed. 
So what you do, so what you do is you tr- you do these like little, you find little points of light. Yeah, I mean, like the the every time we meet with this club, it's mm. like my heart just fills up with joy. Well, just when you were talking about it, my heart was like expanding. It was yeah. like, oh, to feel the sense of space and light in that room. Yeah, yeah. you know, just the crack of it in their lives. Oh, I mean, that, what else is there in life but to try to hand that to someone else? Yeah. What fantastic! Oh, I'm just uh, just so touched by it. Truly, truly touched by it. Um, uh, I I want to know in your own um, arc with with Will. Um, when did you start to understand that this is not? going to be a it's not going to it's not going to be a happy this is not going to be the happy fairy tale ending i i think i pretty much was pretty heavily steeped in denial pretty much all the way through mm. i mean i it was not happy for a long long time mm. um but the little fairy tale was okay as soon as he's out right I mean, we were married for nearly six years while he was in mm. and then 18 months while he was out wow and for those six years i believed that okay we just need to get him out right and then everything will be fine and then not i don't think i was that crazy (laughs) but but that we will have hope you know then then we can start the healing work right we can start the like the joy work i mean you know the interesting thing about being am i still okay yeah you're fine about being married to someone inside is one of the great things that it gave me was this absolute appreciation of what it's like to be with somebody outside Mm. that you can walk down the street holding hands that you can eat a meal together yeah that you can i mean the simplest things that are so that with dennis just make me so happy every time we go to a movie i think god this is so cool yeah you know we're we're like gratitude holding hands (laughs) so cool um Every time we get in a car and decide to drive to another city, I mean, that's something that you can't ever do when you're on parole. Right. You know, you got to call the parole officer and get, you know, permission. Just nothing spontaneous. Yeah. Um, So, but but I think I I, all the way through, I thought, Mm. oh, we just have to get him out. We Mm. just have to get him out. And I mean, you'll see in the end. I know. I'm so excited to read tonight. I know it's the sad part. Um, well, and and but all the way, there's a, also a little happy ending. Mm. There's a little nice turn at the end. <laughs> that um, just just and I, I mean I can say this without ruining the story that one of the things I did realize when I finished the book, when I was getting to the end of the book, and it was it was so it was such a sad ending. I mean, mm. but I thought, okay, I went into prison because I wanted to write about prison. I wanted to to sort of be like in a helicopter looking at this world and understanding how it works. Mm-hmm. Who's in here? What does it do to people who are in here? Guards alike, you know, guards right. and prisoners and administrators and the families. And I learned and I was able to write about it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it took 20 years. Yeah, and but, but, and you, but you ended up not being the helicopter, but <laughs> kind of a little closer, a little closer view. <laughs> so you're a person who's written about fairy tales and myths. I mean, you're, you're, you know, you know, a lot about that world, which, you know, I also know, I know a little bit, I don't know as much as you, I don't think, but I got to study some of it at Pacifica, which I, I loved that mm-hmm. part of it. 
Um, so when you look at this story, is there any particular myth or fairy tale or any characters that you see as yourself or Will or the system of... Oh, there's so many. Yeah. There's so many. I mean, you know, I, I so I write this column I, that I've been writing for t- uh, 21 years almost, and um, weekly. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think pretty much every single story I write <laughs> in my mind has a little bit to do with prison. Uh-huh. Um, you know, but like, I mean, there's, first of all, there's Sleeping Beauty. Right. You know, I, I, uh, there's Rapunzel. Right. <laughs> um, I mean, to, to use the obvious ones. Yeah. But, but there's yeah. so many. I mean, there there are all these great African folktales that, mm. that are about j- justice, mm. that are about you know, like somebody, two two characters, usually like the jackal and the rabbit, you know, uh-huh. coming to the judge who's the lion, right. asking for justice. <laughs> right. And the way that justice is meted out in sort of arbitrary ways and, mm. and trickster ways, you know, and all the trickster stories, because everybody, everyone in prison is a trickster. Mm. I mean, it, there nothing is what it seems wow yeah um and i don't mean just the prisoners like yeah everybody's everybody's kind of pulling yeah the, the masks scheme. are on yeah. all the time and being pulled off and who are you really talking to and are you getting and what's really gonna what's up. really gonna happen yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I, I don't know that I could name one, but mm. I mean, the first thing that came to my mind was Rapunzel. So mm. he, of course, is Rapunzel. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and he's in this <laughs> tower place that I'm going to help him escape from. Just let down your hair, he Will. Had shorter hair than she, but <laughs> but um, but I and I I've written so the, for the column most of the the pieces I write are adaptations, but mm-hmm. every now and then I do a. a a sort of original. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a really great, um, is it West African? I think it's a West African story about the turtle that flies. Do you know this no. story? There's a, there's a, um, it's a, oh, it's an Indian tale. It's a Jataka tale. Mm. Um, and it's this turtle wants to fly. Mm. Um, I think the, the geese are going to leave for winter. They're they're flying away, and the turtle really wants to go. Really wants to go, and so they say to him, "Okay, here's the deal. All you have to we're we're going to put a stick between our two beaks, and you're going to hold on with your mouth to the stick, and we will fly you. Mm. But be careful, don't open your mouth." Mm. And so they're flying over over all these lands, mm-hmm. and people are looking up and laughing at the turtle mm-hmm. and making fun of the turtle and saying, look at that. He looks ridiculous. What a silly-looking thing. And he can't stand it, and he speaks and mm-hmm. falls and cracks his back, and that's how the turtle has a cracked back. Mm-hmm. Okay, But that story really resonated for me because it was kind of like, you know, I was going to be the geese and flying Will, and he just had to keep his mouth shut. <laughs> he just had to, you know, like just... Don't worry about what anyone says about you. Right. Don't listen to what anybody says about mm. you. Just like keep your mouth shut and we will fly away from here and we'll get out. Mm. And uh mm. yeah. So mm. I wrote I wrote a sort of version of that story at one point in my column and um and one of the guards got mad, you know, like, "Oh, you're you're and I think I but I didn't have geese. I had like a pig in there or something, mm. I think. I can't remember the story even so well, but, you know, and he was mad that he was the pig or something. <laughs> so I made a lot of enemies over those years. <laughs> I I have to ask, um, do you keep in touch with anyone from? Well, the girls, um, 
so I raised Cassandra and Sarah, mm-hmm. and um, Cassandra and and I are really close. I mean, she's she's maybe the love of my life. Mm. Dennis too, mm. but but both of ours. I mean, and I adore Sarah, but Sarah has been much more difficult. So mm. Sarah, Sarah, Cass, and I are like you know, she's my daughter, mm-hmm. and she's here when she can be, and we see each other, and she's part of my extended family. Right. Sarah's very much part of the extended family. She, Sarah always has been kind of on me and on again and off again. Mm. So she's sort of like, I love you, I love you, I love you, you're my mom, to I'm never going to speak to you. And she's in an I'm never going to speak to you phase mm. right now. Mm. Will, um, not much. Mm. Um, we've had some some conversations, and they're okay. Mm. Um, he's doing all right. Mm. And... Uh, you know, we're nice to each other. Mm-hmm. Um, when the piece came out in the New York Times, I had told the girls, of course, I, I didn't tell him, and I asked them not to tell him because mm-hmm. I thought, why, you know, he's not going to see it. And right, I, right. He, I, I didn't use his name. And, right, um, why ruffle the feathers if need, if no need? Um, and uh, But Sarah told him, and mm-hmm. he actually called me and said, you know, you write, Whatever you want to write, I, you always behave with integrity. I'm sure what you write wow. will be done with integrity. And I wanted to say this to you in front of Sarah because she's mad. Uh, and um, so I think, you yeah, know, I think he is okay. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Did you? I think that's always a, a people who write about. I, I mean, I know for for me, I had to find some peace with what I wanted to say about my family um, in my the solo show that I do and know that um, I speak with deep love about my family. And I mean, it's clear when I do the show, but I also wanted to speak with honesty about it and, and my own person. I mean, it's my experience I'm writing about anyway, ultimately. And, and so because you do so much work with memoir and you work with so many students uh, what do you tell your students about that and, and how to how to resolve that kind of well it's always a question in yeah. every class and i and i usually you know i used to always say i used to be like just tell it like it is you know right. and, like and anne like lamott be, says right yeah and oh yeah anne lamott's <laughs> my favorite line of hers is uh, if people didn't want to be written about they should have behaved better exactly. right exactly which i think is true <laughs> but i but i also tell them that you know there are sometimes repercussions, so you yeah. you have to know. Be prepared. That. Um, so Sarah, I was really upset when when she called me when it was the day the book came out, I mm. think, and and I was really upset. And then I had this big conversation. Dennis was at work. I called my brother, and my brother said, well, "You're upset. Mm. Come on, you could have predicted this." And mm-hmm. um, but so I I and I you know and I tell them, listen. Be really honest when you're writing. And then when it's done, you can decide what to do. Right. You can decide, you know, am I going to publish this? Right. Am I not going to publish this? Am I going to fictionalize it? Am I going to wait until someone dies? Right. Am I Don't pre-edit just... yourself right. in the right. writing process. Right. Yeah. Or you'll never tell the truth. It's true. You'll, ne- you'll never have the courage to even sit down to face the paper. Right. Because it, it takes... It, that much courage to, to, to sit down. Right, right. And, and to see publishing and writing are two different things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, or performing and writing. I mean, they're two yeah. different things. Yeah, so they're two you, different parts of the process, very yeah. much so. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's what I've, I've come to see uh, about that. And that, you know, there's, there's a certain position in when you're starting, 
you know, to write a- any piece and that you have to give yourself a permission there. There's a certain landscape of starting and just getting it out. And then there's that staying with it thing, you know, yeah. and especially long form. I mean, long form is long. It's long. <laughs> you have to be, you know, there's like you're going over the mountains and through the woods a couple of times. Yeah. You know? Oh, this book, God, I, I no, this book, you know, I wrote it first as a memoir for several years. And then I and I and and I had it out. I, my agent was sending it out. And I kept getting rejections that were kind of like the rejections I was getting during the years of my of my marriage. Mm-hmm. Like you are crazy. Mm-hmm. Or you know, there's something wrong with you or mm-hmm. and, and I so I brought it back in. And I thought, okay, I'm going to write it as a novel. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to write it from the point of view of a daughter of a prisoner, because then nobody starts with the question of how could you love him? Right, right. So I wanted to get rid of that question. Mm-hmm. So I spent three years working on it as a novel, mm-hmm. finished it. And a dear friend of mine, who's a who's a longtime writer friend, um, read it and said, you know, this has to be a memoir. <laughs> and You're like, fuck. Yes, I, it's exactly what I said. <laughs> Did not hit him, but was really tempted to. But but he, but I knew but you did the know. minute he said it, I knew he was yeah. right. Yeah. So back into it. Yeah. You know? So it was long, long form. Well, thank you for your courage for going into territory that is not, I mean, you lived in territory that was not easy, but then to tell your story about it. And, and, and it, it, it is, it, it's, there's still something I haven't quite put my finger on it yet. Why, why it makes one uncomfortable mm. to think about this falling in love with someone like this, because we we have versions of it all over our culture. And yet this is the big line you're not allowed to cross. Yeah. And and so I still haven't like quite figured out like what it is inside of us that 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 this is such the dark thing about. But um, but yeah, you're you've you you stir the pot with this definitely. And yet I want to say to the listeners, it's you cannot put it down once you start. It's like and you know how it's going to end. I mean, she said you know she's married to someone else. She lives in L.A. now. Okay, we know how it's ending, people. <laughs> but you're like I I have to see how you find, you know, what what happens with all of this. And um, so it's, it's a fascinating and intense read, truly, Thanks, truly, and, and beautifully written, truly. So thank you for coming here. And, and thank you for your work with the kids. I just find that so beautiful. Is there any way if any listeners wanted to, f- do you guys have a website? We yet? are, we are, Going to be launching a website in about seven or eight days. Oh, okay. so my, will you let me know? Yeah, and I will. Absolutely. I'll announce it on the show here for absolutely. people, and it'll be linked to my website, which is already up. Perfect. Um, so that's amyfriedman.net. and it's Friedman F R I E D M A N. Yes, as in fried man. <laughs> Unless you speak German, Friedman. Friedman. That's very good, Friedman. Uh, so and it's amyfriedman.net, not .com, people. Uh, so thank you. Thank you for being here and Thanks sharing this. a million for having me. Oh, my, my deepest pleasure. My deepest pleasure. We will do it again. Ne- next book that comes out. Cool. All right. Cool. Uh, and everyone, I want to thank everyone for listening live today. And those of you who download, you know who you are. You're awesome human beings on earth. But there's three people in particular, and they all of their names start with the letter M today, who I want to say thank you to. 
and uh, they are, uh, and you, you listeners know who you are. It's Malcolm, Mark, and Michelle. Um, the three of them sent us donation to the show last week. I have to tell you, I was thrilled to get that. It lets us know that we are doing work that people are paying attention to, that people want to support, that um, they get that this is a, a passion that we do this podcast, and that the fact that uh, listeners are supporting us and helping us pay some of the things that we need to pay for around here. We owe so truly, truly appreciate that. You make us feel loved. You do. So I want to thank uh, everyone. Uh, thank Logan for coming down today. And, and as always, picking songs, pushing buttons and moving little thingies on the mixing board. Uh, and uh, all the people at Smodcast, uh, Will, thank you, Will, who's out there listening probably right now. And thank the big KS, the big Kevin Smith, who who uh, sits a, a p- atop the, the pile at uh, Smodcast. I want to thank him again for coming to my show on Saturday and weeping like a baby. Uh, he laughed too, people. I do make people laugh also. But yes, it is. A, if, if you loved my dad, there, there will be tears that will happen. Uh, and uh, And Dallas, Fort Worth, Irving people, guess what? I'm coming your way. April 18th, I'm doing a benefit for some amazing charter schools in the area. Uh, it's called Winfrey Academy Foundation, uh, but I'm doing my show, A Carlin Home Companion, at the Irving Arts Center. It's a benefit. Uh, it's going to be a great night. They're going to have a silent auction. There's a VIP meet and greet with me. Come and see my show, and and I'll make you laugh and cry just like I did, Mr. Kevin Smith. All right, everyone. Have a beautiful week. Uh, next week, uh, I've got author, another author. It's like author month here around here. Uh, Lisa Cron, who actually wrote a book about the neuroscience of memoir writing. Writing and a story. She's amazing. Um, she was my agent at one point. Hmm, we'll have to discuss that. Uh, so we'll see. We'll have her that next week. And then I can't remember who I have the week after because I have a middle aged brain. And that's just those are items that just go into a slot that I don't know how to get to anymore. I think I need tweezers. I'm not sure. Anyway, love you all. Um, take care and enjoy spring if it's hit your hits hit your general area. Love you. Bye. One, two, three. There is one whom I have wronged, and he looks at me angrily. This bothers me. No matter what I do, I offer my apologies. Always he ignores my pleas But I ask myself What the better man would do He would forgive me So I'll forgive me too There have been so many times That I have felt so low I would rather die than look at me someone else's view And always there were those who would gladly tell me I'm no good But I ask myself what the better man would do He would love me so I will love me too I've been ashamed the life that I've been living Take my hand 
tell me I'm forgiven Take my hand and tell me I'm forgiven. So if you're walking down the street and you see a soul who's in defeat, don't you pass him by, no matter what you do. Cause brother, don't you understand that when you land a helping hand, person that you really help is you yeah love your neighbor and he will love you too if you do the things if you do the things hey if you do the things the better may Whoa, do What's up, kids? Fat Kev Smith, quickly reminding you ways that you could financially remunerate those of us at Smodco who give you so much fucking free all over your face, neck, and chest. Um, here's some gigs that are coming up and whatnot. Over in Orlando at uh, the Orlando Improv, over there in Florida, America's Wang, as Homer told us once. Uh, it's me and Bry Johnson from Comic Book Men, and tell them Steve Dave. Doing Why Bry live March 26, 8 p.m. Orlando Improv. Why Bry? Gonna be a blast, man. March 30th, I'm gonna be back out in Los Angeles, and me and Ralph gonna do that magical show we call Hollywood Babylon up at the Lovitz. Saturday, March 30th, uh, 8 p.m. Tickets at csmod.com. And don't forget, folks, comic book men every Thursday night. At 10 o'clock, they've been rerunning it on Sunday nights as well. Uh, so th- there's only a few more episodes left of this season. Get in there. Show the boys you love. And, of course, Jay and Silent Bob. Super groovy cartoon movie is fucking everywhere, man. Uh, come see us. Tickets are moving real fast. Tour starts on 420. Nooch. Tickets at csmod.com slash groovy movie. Okay, on with another Smodco podcast. This has been a production of Smodco Internet Radio. Sir, only at Smodcast.com.